All right, get your Bibles tonight. Open to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. It has been a good day, and thank you to all those who made that happen. Thank you, preacher, for the opportunity to speak. I don't take that lightly. It is an honor and privilege, and also nervous. Goodness. Revelation chapter 1. One of the cherished memories that I have of raising my children, and I feel like I'm still doing that to some extent, but uh, in raising my children and those childhood times with, uh, you know, just those special times we, we were together as family. Uh, one of those times is when we would just, I just remember in my mind it being summer, and after I'd been to work, we had eaten supper, uh, all the chores had been done, and we would just have some family time together. And one of the things we enjoyed so much doing was reading books. Uh, we'd just pick a book, and we'll just read it, and it ended up to be where Tracy was the one who would read the books to our family. And uh, as she did, of course, just a host of different books, biographies and different things, and fiction, nonfiction, and we would just have a reading list of things we would go through. But invariably, we would uh, be there that evening, and the kids, they were younger and had their, their baths, and I remember they were, you know, we'd read the book up until bedtime, and Tracy was reading that book, and it was intense, and we were all gathered just on the edge of our seat. And you know how the, the books can be, they get to these uh, climactic points where, uh, I mean, it's just, just building up and building up, and you get so wrapped up in the story and anticipation of what lies ahead and what's going on, and uh, we just couldn't put it down. And at that very tense moment, you know, the, the hero, who's, the fellow who's supposed to be the hero in the book or the lady is in great peril and in danger, or maybe the cause, uh, the righteous cause through the theme of the book is, looks like it's going to fall apart. And... Uh, it's just not going to prevail that evil is on the verge of just complete victory. And as she's reading the books and getting up to that climactic point and the kids are getting up further on the edge of their seat and their eyes are getting bigger and she stops reading and says, oh my goodness. And the kids are like, what, what? She said, it's time to go to bed. Oh, no, Mom, please, come on. Come on, just one more chapter, one more paragraph. And oh, they would beg and they would plead and sometimes we'd give in and sometimes we couldn't depending on what the next day was going to bring. But off to bed they went. And boy, I can remember this one night in particular, that same thing happened. And after they were off in bed and we had said our prayers and they were tucked in and we were going about getting ready for... Uh, the next day and getting things ready for ourselves to go to bed, uh, turning out lights, checking doors, being sure the coffee pot's on. You've got to be sure that thing's set. And, uh, boy, doing all those things. And I come back to the bedroom, and my wife's already in bed. And there she is with a lamp on, and she's reading, which is not unusual. But as I start to get ready, I notice she is reading in the book that we were supposed to have stopped reading. 
And I was like, uh-uh-uh, that's not fair. What are you reading? Well, she said, I just had to find out how it was going to end. And I said, oh, the kids are... How does it end? Let's look. <laughs> and unbeknownst to the children, she had skipped ahead to the end of the book to find out how it ended. And, you know, it was at that climactic point where it could go either way. And I kind of sensed that you know, spiritually, I think we're at that point. And we're getting to that point. And the tension may get a lot, lot greater. The perils may get more treacherous. It appears that righteousness may be failing in this world and evil has the upper hand. And tonight, I thought it would be a good time for us to skip ahead let's go to the back of the book and let's see how this thing ends. Hmm? Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 19. John is on the Isle of Patmos, exiled for preaching the Word of God. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 gives us the outline of the book of Revelation. It says, write the things, here's the first part, which thou hast seen, that's chapter 1. And the things which are, that is chapter 2 and 3. And the things which shall be hereafter, that begins with chapter 4. And it is from chapter 4 on that we want to see the things that are going to be hereafter. And in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, let's read it. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. It begins the prophetic portion of the things which shall be hereafter. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now if you would, skip to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Verse number 11, Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. 
and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I want you to join me in skipping to the back of the book tonight as we discuss the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Word of God and how often we here in America take it for granted when many believers around the world don't have a copy of Your Word in their own language. But we have been blessed. Lord, uh, we just pray that You would meet with us tonight, that You would speak to our hearts. And Lord, as we look upon this world, it can bring fear, it can bring trepidation, anxiety. But Lord, as we look toward heaven tonight, I pray that You would calm those feelings. Help us to get our focus upon You in the task that we have as Your followers. Please meet with us and help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. The return of Jesus Christ to this earth comes in two distinct parts. There is the return that He has coming for the saints, which we refer to often as the point of the rapture, where we will meet Him in the air. Then there is a period of seven years of tribulation upon this earth and time in heaven with Him Then, what we read about just a moment ago in Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11, it is the return of Jesus Christ where He plants His feet upon this earth. The return of Christ is referred to in Scripture as the blessed hope in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That blessed hope and the glorious appearing is going to come at any moment. The word hope there in this text as well as in other places throughout Scripture, it means not a wishful thinking, but it is an expectation or confidence. It's not hopeful thinking or based on some desire that someone may have. It is not I hope it is going to happen. It is a confident expectation that it will happen. It is based on the authority of God's holy word and the promise that God, who cannot lie, has made. Clarence Larkin states in his book, Dispensational Truth, that prophecy is not a haphazard guess like our weather probabilities, but it is history written in advance. It is an absolute certainty that Christ will come again. 
It is a definite event on God's timetable. And it will most surely occur. It was promised to the disciples during the ministry of Christ in John 14.3. He said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It was confirmed to these disciples as Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as He went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. It is mentioned or explained in almost every epistle penned by Paul and Peter. And it is detailed in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ given to John on the Isle of Patmos. And that is where we go tonight. It is here we turn and consider five aspects tonight. And I won't be as long as the preacher, I promise. Regarding the return of Jesus Christ. The first aspect I want us to consider is the opening of heaven. As we look at verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open. This is not the first occurrence of heaven opening. There are actually four times in the New Testament that heaven was open, and each of them are related in some way to Jesus Christ. It is Matthew 3.16, John 1.51, Acts 7.56, and here, Revelation 19.11. But in Revelation chapter 4, the Bible says that not that heaven was opened, but that a door is opened in heaven. And John was ordered to come up hither in order to get the rest of the prophetic message. The rest of this message, therefore, is not going to be from the point of view of man looking on earth, but is going to be from the point of view from heaven. Heaven's perspective. Therefore, this message will be much different than what the world would give us about the circumstances going on. The world would say, things are getting better. But heaven says things are getting worse. The world will say, we are progressing into prosperity. But as we learned this morning, heaven says, we are actually regressing. Regressing, we are and headed for judgment. The world will say, we're going to experience peace. But heaven says, we are headed for war. So it is important that we get this message from heaven's perspective if it's to be true and accurate. In Revelation 4 verse 1, a door is opened in heaven to allow someone to come in. But here in Revelation 19.11, the heavens are open to allow someone to come out. These two openings are pivotal points in the book of Revelation. They mark the distinction of Christ coming for His saints at the rapture in chapter 4 verse 1. And Christ coming with His saints to rule and reign on earth in chapter 19 verse 11. So here we have the opening of heaven. The curtains of heaven are being pulled back and the scene unfolds for the appearing of none other 
than Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the second aspect. See, we're moving fast. The observations of Christ. John pauses in verse 11 to take note of several things referencing this rider upon this horse. The book of Revelation, above all other books in Holy Scripture, directs our whole being to the one grand person of history, the preeminent and peerless Christ. I'm reminded of our need here in the midst of all that is happening to fix our eyes upon Him. David said, In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up in Psalm 5.3. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 admonishes us to lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the race set before us. How are we to do that? Verse 2 explains looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we purposely take time to just observe Him. May we behold Him in all of His wisdom. May we take time to behold Him in His righteous character. May we take time to look at Him in His goodness. May we ponder upon His great wonder and His power and His great glory. That's what John is doing here as he sees this rider and he mentions that he's coming upon a horse. The significance of this white horse during Roman rule was known. Roman generals always returned from victories riding upon a white horse. That's how the crowds knew they had won their battle. War paintings of Napoleon is often pictured riding upon this white horse. And here it declares our general is victorious even before the battle takes place. This is not the first time a white horse has appeared. Back in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, it appeared there as well. And it was with the first seal of judgment that was opened. But the rider upon that horse was a counterfeit. He wanted to be esteemed as Christ, and so he appeared that way. And later, this false appearance was revealed, and he was found to be the Antichrist. However, in this text, the white horse carries the true Christ. And we know this because of the names that John calls him. In verse 11, he is described as faithful and true as compared to that untrue and unfaithful writer in the previous, previous chapters. In verse 12, it says that there was a name written that no man knew but he himself, realizing that there's always some mysterious part associated with Christ that we do not know yet. And then we get to something we do know in chapter uh, 19, verse 13, where Jesus is described as the Word of God. We do know this, and it is a term to describe Jesus Christ that is only used by John. John used it six times, including this one. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, he uses it four times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then again in verse 14, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, this is our Jesus Christ coming on this horse. Again, in John, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he mentions Him as the Word of life. 
And here in our text, He's called the Word of God. In verse 15, there is no doubt because He is acclaimed as the King of kings and Lord of lords, ready to take the throne to rule and to reign. His vesture is mentioned in verse 13 that it was dipped in blood. It means to cover wholly with fluid. We would think maybe that it was the blood He shed on the cross, but not so. It is the blood of His enemies here in prediction before it happens. Verse 12, He is mentioned as wearing crowns. The word crown here is different from the word crown in other places in the Bible and even different from where it's mentioned in Revelation 4. If you've read that passage before, you know that there are many there with crowns upon their heads and they take those crowns and cast them down at the feet of Christ in worship to Him. Those crowns in Revelation 4 mean a crown that is won. It is a crown that is earned for their valor and for their effort. But the crown here is not so. The crown here is a royal diadem placed and reserved only for those who are worthy. And it's so with Christ. We notice that it says He was crowned, had crowns, but many crowns. All the diadems belong to Him because He is overall and truly King of all kings. In contrast, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 12 and verse 3, Satan is ascribed to have crowns, but only seven. The Antichrist in chapter 13 is ascribed crowns, but only ten. The many crowns, including the ones upon their heads for a time, belong upon the brow of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The writer goes on in verse 11 and tells us the third aspect, and that is the order of His business. It says that He's going to come in righteousness, and He doth judge and make war. Currently, the order of business is to seek and to save that which is lost. Not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. However, at His return, the order of business changes. He is not coming for the cross. He's coming for the throne. He is coming not as a sacrifice for sin, but as a sovereign to put away sin. It describes Him as a judge, which truly He is. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. He is coming to bring righteous judgment. It is going to be His law that rules. It is going to be His interpretation of His law that stands. It is going to be His sentencing that is going to be declared. It is going to be His form of punishment and payment that will be made because He is the judge. 1 Corinthians 4-5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. 
He not only is described as a judge in our text, but He's described also as a warrior. His weapon, verse 15, says, And out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nations. And then again, down in verse 21, and the, remnant, uh, and the remnant were slain with the sword of Him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of His mouth. This weapon is none other than the Word of God. It is a spiritual weapon, not a carnal. And the power of the Word of God is greater than any other weapon ever conceived by man and that man has ever seen. It is the power of this Word that created this world. Psalm 33.9 says, For He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. It is the power of this Word that brings victory for the Christian. Ephesians 6.17 lists the armor and the only offensive weapon we have, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No doubt when Christ comes, it will only take one word out of His mouth to put down all evil. And that's what we see developing and coming next. The fourth aspect, the overthrow of evil. I draw your attention to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 17. I thought about trying to describe the events, but I think John does a pretty good job. I think we'll just read it. Revelation 19 and verse 17. I love it because he invites all of the fowls on the planet to gather together to get ready for a feast. He says, And I saw, verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Well, that battle didn't last long, huh? It was over pretty quick. And in Revelation chapter 20, the angel comes and binds up Satan and casts him into the bottomless pit where he's going to stay for a thousand years. And then we pick up again in chapter 20 and verse 7. When the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and passed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, 
and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The overthrow of evil in that day is going to come. It's going to come. No more sin. No more wickedness. No more evil to reign. What a day that's going to be. But in light of this, the fifth aspect, what should be our outlook? Well, we should definitely have an element of joy. (laughs) Where all wrongs are made right. Where Christ takes the throne and rules in righteousness. And we can joy in the fact that we know that day is going to come. But may I warn us of a danger? As evil advances, I think many of us can lose focus of other elements and solely focus upon our element of joy that evil will be put down. I'm afraid we may develop, if we haven't already, an attitude that Christ actually condemned in His disciples in Luke chapter 9. Whereas Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, they were passing through a city of Samaria and they rejected Christ and wouldn't have anything to do with Him. The disciples said, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down out of heaven and consume them like Elijah did? And Jesus turned and rebuked His disciples. And He said, You do not know what spirit you're of. And may I say, we have a danger of developing that same spirit whenever we see evil getting the upper hand. It's that same spirit that Jonah had Rejoicing in the thought of judgment coming upon the evil Ninevites. Whereas it was God's goal and purpose for them to repent. So not only, yes, we're to have an element of joy where all the wrongs are going to be made right, but there should also be an element of grief that balances out that joy. You see, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's addressing the mockers who say, where is the appearing of Christ? You keep talking about Him coming back. You keep talking about His return, but He is not. Where is it? Where is the coming of this Christ? And he tells the believers in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. And it's specifically in context the promise of His coming. As some men count slackness. But, here's why He hasn't come. He's long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish. Not even the evil. Not even the wicked. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It is truly God's grace extended to the lost world that prevents His return at this moment. You may say, they've heard the gospel, and many have. They have rejected it time and time and time again. God has already given them grace. He doesn't have to give them any more. They do not deserve it. They are vile. They are wicked. Did you deserve His grace? How many times did He extend His grace to you? How many times did you reject Him? How many are we allowed? God is the one who decides that. And I'm afraid in the midst of our self-righteousness, we have lost our compassion for the lost, for the sinner, for the evil, vile men of our day. But if Christ were to return, their fate is sealed for all of eternity. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, tell us what happens. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, we are anxiously waiting for Him to return to make all things right. But I think He may be anxiously waiting for us to preach the gospel to every creature so they might not perish. He's coming back. And once He does, yes, evil will be put down. But sadly, those who've rejected Him will not have another opportunity to receive Him and be saved. If you're not saved tonight, get saved. If you are saved and not doing your part, to get the gospel out, get busy. All that you've been worried about, all that's going on in our world today, no matter how bleak the situation looks like right now, take heart, O oh Christian, because we just read the back of the book and we know that our God is victorious. 
And as John said in closing out the book of Revelation, I say as well, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time and your work.